just want to encourage you as you get a copy of this, uh, Developing a Healthy Prayer Life for our week of prayer. It's 31 meditations. Uh, got an opportunity this month, this next month, to spend some time meditating on developing a healthy prayer life. It's meditations on communing with God, and so I trust the Lord will use that to encourage us, to help us to grow in our life of prayer with God. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 11. We begin reading in verse 19, and I'll read down through verse 26. Scripture says, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And may the Lord bless the truth of his word to our hearts. This is one of those passages that the further along in studying it, the more I wanted to settle down here. Uh, sometimes when you see significance from or about a passage from what others say about it, uh, you realize, oh, I need to spend a little bit more time for things that I didn't necessarily see. And uh, I think this passage certainly encourages us in terms of what God is doing in a place that is unexpected in a very large city, and as we look at the history of the church in the book of Acts, this is going to become a place where God is going to launch a great mission uh, to the Gentiles. And so there's, there's time uh, well spent when we take time to look at what's going on at Antioch. I believe we're looking at the foundation of the church here at Antioch. Uh, certainly, evangelism was taking place here to the Jews. Verse 19, it says, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But then there also has been evangelism to the Greeks. And of course, the church is both Jew and Gentile. It's not meant to be segmented to one people group. It's... As Christ is the Savior of all, He's the Lord of all, He's preached as Lord of all, then He brings people together and binds them together in Christ. Those who formerly were 
separate from one another according to his purposes. Of course, with the Jews, he's brought them together in the church, and we are seeing that here. We're seeing that in the work that's being done at Antioch. We've seen in the first part of this section the foundation that is being laid, the foundation of Christ Jesus, of course, again with the Jews, but now also with the Greeks. There's no other foundation that can be laid than that foundation. But then, as the church comes into existence, then there needs to be an establishment of it. And I believe we're seeing that in this section of Scripture. Verse 21 says, The hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. But it's that group of people who came to Christ that are providing certainly the foundation in terms of people. But that foundation has to be cared for and then built upon. That foundation was laid how? Who was preaching the gospel? Well, Saul is not here. Paul's not here yet. Peter is not here. The ones who brought the word of God to these people are the ones who were scattered as a result of the persecution that was connected with Stephen. And so you have a large number of people who've come to Christ, and I'm not saying they had no leaders, certainly these gospel preachers, these ones who came preaching the good news had some knowledge, they had some, uh, you could say, theological knowledge or knowledge of what the church was and how it was to operate, but there needs to be some guidance, there needs to be some help. And so as we look at the spread of the gospel here, we understand that God has worked. But now, look at verse 22. It says, The news about them, that is, these new believers, reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. The church has ears. Because the church is people. And as the people there at Jerusalem, believers in Christ, hear what is taking place, they recognize that there's a need. There are believers, infant believers, new believers, who may be receiving some teaching, but they need some guidance, they need some help. And when the word of these Gentile conversions came to them, no doubt, Luke doesn't draw attention to it, there would have been rejoicing. There would have been joy at new birth and those who believed in Christ. I believe one of the things that would have prepared the Jerusalem church for this is what we've just gone through in chapters 10 and 11. Because remember, Peter not only witnessed to and saw the conversion of the household of Cornelius and those who were there that day, but he came back to Jerusalem and defended that and showed the church of Jerusalem, the people who questioned him, that this was something that God was doing, that he was saving Gentiles as well. And so here comes another, uh, you could say, piece of news, but another report of God doing something in another place. And if you're reading through the book of Acts and you're reading and hoping in the progress of the gospel, this would have been very encouraging to hear of a new place where God is working, and he's working specifically among the Gentiles. So it's news that they welcome, no doubt. But it was also news that warranted specific action. Because in verse 22, it says, The news about them reached the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. They had to act. They had to take ownership. 
where there are believers, new believers, there needs to be teaching and instruction. You can imagine as they talked among themselves, they realized they had a responsibility or at least an opportunity to help the believers there. And I don't know if we think like that in this uh, day and age. Uh, There may be from time to time that we hear about believers perhaps even new believers, that do not have a church, that do not have a shepherd, if there is a church, and that is a concern. Uh, Whenever you hear of a church that is not being led, what happens when there's a flock with no shepherd? The sheep tend to scatter, or they tend to be attacked by the enemy, and for a church or for a group of people, believing people, to go for a time without a shepherd to guide, to guard, without leadership to teach, then you have the potential for danger. And I believe that's in part what would have been on the hearts of this church there at Jerusalem to be concerned, even to the point of sending someone like Barnabas to go help there. Um, there was a time some time ago when I, uh, through teaching classes, uh, both at our church prior to my being pastor and in another church, that I became aware of a group of believers who were, they had been a part of a church, they were no longer part of the church, and they were really looking for a good church in their area. And as I became aware of them and was asked to um, teach the same class I had taught here and also in another place, I went and taught. And on Wednesday nights for several months, I was driving from the Menor area down to um, the area where I was meeting with these folks. And I, I realized here's a group of people who are in need of some help. They're in need of a shepherd. They're in need of care. And I was thankful to not be the only one who was concerned about this group of people. Several pastors invested time and resources and also were seeking to help this particular group, but eventually, I'm not saying that he necessarily has all of that group, but I know Pastor John Marino eventually became the pastor for some of those folks. But where there are believers... And there is no shepherd when there's no guidance. There can be danger. Jesus, in his ministry, earthly ministry, at one point in Matthew, it says, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And, of course, there are still, I'm thankful for good sister churches where there is a ministry of the gospel, but certainly there are places even here in Ohio, even in our area, where there's a need for good Bible teaching. And there are people who, they're not committed to any particular place. Maybe they're unaware. Sometimes it's our opportunity to help them in some way by pointing them in their area to a place where they can be taught 
built up, encouraged in the faith. I hope that as a church we would keep our eyes and ears open for circumstances like that, that if God ever called us to help a group of people in some way, that we would endeavor to do that. But here's the situation. You've got a group of people up there in Antioch. The news of their conversion comes to the church of Jerusalem, and who do they send? If you read the book of Acts to this point, you might think, well, Peter would be a good person to send. Maybe one of the other apostles. But why is Barnabas sent? Does it surprise you that Barnabas is the one to go? And notice, this is the action of the church. It says, they sent. So verse 22, it's there certainly approving and encouraging and perhaps even supporting Barnabas as he would go. Barnabas may have been uh, independently wealthy. Uh, he had land to sell and, just, and give the money away according to Acts chapter 4. But I, it's possible he was supported as well. But he's the one who's chosen to go. Why Barnabas? Why not Peter? Why not someone else? Well, turn back for just a moment to Acts chapter 4, where Barnabas is introduced. You know, that's not his name. That's not really his name. His real name's Joseph. Verse 36, Acts chapter 4, it says, Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, that would be Cyprus, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is where we're introduced to this man who was an encouragement to the church. His name was Joseph, but because of his influence, I don't believe just because of this, inst this, this instance, but because of who he was and what he was like, he earned a nickname. And that name was Barnabas. And we can talk about that in a minute, but just look at his actions there in the church as he encouraged the church at a time where there was need. He sold a piece of land. He gave the money to the church. We've been going through the book of Acts. Remember in chapter 9 when Barnabas was the one who came to Saul following his conversion and his relocation eventually to Jerusalem. And Saul, this persecutor of Christians, was there in Jerusalem, but everybody was afraid of him. But it was Barnabas who reached out to Saul and listened to Saul and then took time to introduce him to the rest of the believers, to the apostles. And then Saul, for a time, was in Jerusalem. In other words, he believed Saul when no one else would and gave him a hearing. And then he brought him, he integrated him into the community of believers there in Jerusalem. One writer said of Barnabas, as he's trying to characterize his life based upon other passages of Scripture as well, he said this of Barnabas, a warm heart and a helping hand for those in need well characterized Barnabas. The character and service of this man of God left an abiding mark upon the early church. While he does not rank in importance in the Bible with the Twelve or with Paul, it would do an injustice to Barnabas to call him one of the lesser lights around Paul. He was a worthy peer of Paul. And the apostle said Barnabas side by side with himself in Christian service. You can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and also Galatians chapter 2. He says because he was overshadowed by his more gifted and capable companion, 
the true greatness of Barnabas has not always been sufficiently recognized. This is a man who was a leader in the early church. This is a man who was a great blessing to the point where the apostles had a nickname for him. Barnabas. He was an encourager. And he sent off in verse 22. Look back at Acts chapter 11, verse 23. It says, Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Now, without trying to place the weight of these people's full spiritual development upon him, you could say that his solo ministry here was of great encouragement to the church, great help, and actually brought more people to the Lord. More people came to the Lord after his arrival. There were people who had come to the Lord prior to his being there, but once he comes, his influence brought more people. So let's take just a little bit of time and look at what's going on here when he arrives and what he says and what he does and his character. The first thing that's said there in verse 23 is that he arrived, which would have been a journey, all the way from Jerusalem, now up to Antioch. And as he arrives, he, what does it say? He witnessed the grace of God. He looked at the situation with all these Greek believers And what does Luke describe it as? This is the grace of God. And certainly it describes the whole scene. It was God's grace that brought those believers after the persecution of Stephen up to that place to preach the gospel to those Greeks. It was the grace of God that brought these many Greek converts who had come to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus. And of course, beyond all those things, it was the grace of God that sent Christ into the world to bring salvation to all of these people. So this is the grace of God, the grace of God that brings men to salvation. That appeared, of course, in Christ, but then Christ sends his servants out, and as they preach the message, then he works graciously in the hearts, and they come to believe, and then as they grow, even you could say that the grace of God is at work to develop them, to grow them, to become more like Christ. This is really the planting of this church at Antioch. It's the grace of God that he would bring something into existence in this place and at this time and with these people for his own purposes to the praise of his glorious grace that he would save sinners. Now this is an interesting way to plant a church. And you could imagine that this wasn't on the agenda of those who were preaching the Lord Jesus here. I don't know that they were necessarily thinking in terms of, hey, Let's plant a church here. They're just preaching Jesus Christ. And what happens? Believers believe. I mean, they come to belief in Christ. And then you have baptism, of course. And then you have the, the formation of what is an infant church because of persecution that sent these people there. Again, that's not exactly in the church planting manual. It's not really the expectation that that's how it would come about. And yet that's how it came about here I pastored for a little time in South Carolina, a small little church, country church. The way that church came into existence, and perhaps some others in the area, was just through someone who came into town and started preaching a tent meeting. 
And as people came to Christ and that tent meeting continued, eventually they realized there needs to be a church here because they're believers here now. And when you see God working in those ways, when you see His grace to raise up people who believed in Him, it is cause for rejoicing. It's cause to give praise to the Lord for His grace, but it's cause for rejoicing. And when Barnabas saw this, this affected his heart. Look at what it says in verse 23. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced. It brought him gladness and joy to see what God was doing, even in the lives of these Greeks. And Barnabas was willing to believe that God would be doing good things, even with Saul. Remember, Saul comes to Jerusalem, and who of all people believed that God actually had done something in Saul's life? It was Barnabas. And so he believed that God truly was at work here. He was rejoicing in the report, but now he gets to see things firsthand. He gets to shake the hands and greet all these new believers who'd recently come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ, all these Greeks who now he has fellowship with, now he is brother to, now in God's providence, he's going to lead and to help. And what does he do? He witnesses the grace of God. He rejoices in what is taking place. But in verse 23, beyond that, it says, he began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Barnabas understood some things about the Christian life. He certainly understood what it was to come to Christ himself. But it's here where he proves true to his nickname. That nickname, Bar, Aramaic word for son. Nabas, which means to lift up. A son is not in terms of a family. It's in terms of his characteristic this is a son of, this is what this person is like. He's, a, he's somebody who lifts people up. He's somebody who encourages their hearts. He lifts their hearts. He refreshes them. He builds them up. He leaves them with a smile. And more confidence is the idea. And what does it say here? It says he began to encourage them all. He sees these Greek believers recognizes they've come to Christ, his Savior too, and he takes these young believers and through public instruction and private exhortation, he's encouraging them to remain true to the Lord with intent of heart. Notice the wording there. It says, with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. And, of course, what he does here is something that we could do for one another if we recognize what the Scripture teaches and we obey what the Scripture teaches. He's doing this on a broad scale as a leader. But we are called, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, to encourage and build up one another. That's what Paul says. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing Writer of Hebrews says, encourage one another day after day as long as it's called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
Again, Hebrews 10 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us to consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Remember that text? And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Building up. Encouraging. This was his approach. This was his main ministry there to people who had already come to Christ. Now they're, they're new in the faith. They don't have that same heritage and background that the other Jewish believers had. They wouldn't have had that same level of instruction. They wouldn't have that same level of knowledge. And so as he comes and he's encouraging them, he's doing something that you can imagine no one else is doing for them. Now, I believe if we're going to do this ourselves, if we're going to be like Barnabas in this way, we have to have faith. We have to be others-minded. We can't always be thinking about ourselves. We need to realize that others are in need of help. Paul, in his instruction, of course, is telling the Thessalonians to encourage one another. He says in Ephesians, Let none, no unwholesome word proceed from your mouths, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. So it does, encouragement does happen as we use our words for good purposes to build up. What's the opposite of that? It's destruction. It's tearing down. That should never be the posture of any Christian to tear down another Christian. No, instead we need to use our words, and certainly Barnabas' life, his ministry was characterized by words publicly and privately where he was building people up. Even if they had sinned or were struggling, there was an encouragement, there was help coming their way through Barnabas' words. And so that instruction that Paul gave the Ephesians is really for all believers. We're going to encourage one another. It's not unwholesome words that need to come out of our mouth, but words that are good for edification, for building up. What does that look like? Well, Paul goes on to say, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, implying that to do the opposite, to tear down, to destroy, will actually grieve God's Holy Spirit. That's not our purpose ever as believers. And then he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And he's, he's going there to the practices of a life that's redeemed by grace. Barnabas is, is there. He's just giving this kind of instruction to these new believers. They need to hear this. And if we're honest, so do we. And we need to be determined in our purpose to encourage others in the specific encouragement here, look at verse 23. It says, he began to encourage them. The word began is in italics in the New American Standard. That's trying to help us to see that the verb here is, is it's describing something that is continuing. He started to do it. He continues to do it. This was his continual ministry to these 
new believers at Antioch. He encourages them all, nobody excluded, and here's the focus, that with resolute heart they would remain true to the Lord. He's calling them to purpose. He's calling them to perseverance in that purpose. And what's the issue here? Being true to the Lord? These are new believers. Temptation is going to come. It probably already has. Persecution is going to come. Maybe it already has, although we don't have indications of it here from what Luke describes. But we know wherever the gospel goes and wherever it has its effect, it's going to bring persecution. Temptation's going to come. Persecution's going to come. Trials of their faith are going to come. If a husband believed and maybe the wife didn't, or the vice versa within a marriage, that's going to bring conflict because now one person has an allegiance to Christ and the other doesn't. If it's within a family, perhaps a child comes to Christ, a young person comes to Christ and the parents don't, but whatever the dynamics are, there's going to be challenges that are going to face new believers. And Barnabas here is encouraging them to do what we don't always do. When we make a choice and we have pursued a course of action, certainly this is belief in Christ, and we know there's certainty in that, there's security in that, but we also know that there are those who, who make that choice, they believe in Christ, they turn to Christ, but then there are things that come their way that threaten that continued following of Christ. Now, if they're a true believer, they're certainly going to persevere. I don't want to get into all of the theology of that because I don't know that that's, that's not where Luke is going here. He's just talking about Barnabas' encouragement to these believers to persevere with intention of heart. It's the, you've decided to follow Jesus, you keep on following Jesus. Don't turn away from this. Let me give you more reasons as to why you should follow Jesus and continue to follow Jesus and giving more instruction. And obviously following the Lord, remaining true to the Lord would mean remaining true to Him personally, being committed to follow Him, being committed to obey Him. That would be remaining true to His Word, believing His Word, being committed to His Word, not, not diverging and going a different direction than His Word, listening to the voice of the shepherd and not turning to the, to the calls of false teachers or other philosophers, but following Jesus. Barnabas is, stay true to that. Because of who Jesus is, because the truth is the truth. This seems to be Barnabas' ministry later on in chapter 13 where it says, Many, the, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. In chapter 14, after Paul and Barnabas preached to the gospel to a city, they go back to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. It says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, that's true believers, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many hardships, many difficulties that, that face believers, 
we could certainly say new and old. Right? It's not just, not just new believers. Well, you may have been a believer for some time, but there are still things that come into your life that challenge you. Is the Lord teaching you endurance in your Christian life? Is He teaching you to remain true to the Lord? How do we do that? I was meditating on that this last week. I just came to some thoughts and wanted to write them out for myself. I'm going to share some of that with you. I've tried to apply it more to the Christian life than my specific circumstances, but here's some of the things that I thought about. Endurance in the Christian life is no accident. As Christians, we must frequently confess sin and pray to our Heavenly Father for strength and peace and wisdom. We must faithfully persevere through hardships and trials by His grace. We must rely upon the God of grace amid multiplied afflictions, exercising patience when we're sinned against. We must find solace and sustenance in the living Word of God and take comfort in the faith and love of those who truly know God. And we must receive their encouragement when they offer it. Or sometimes just by their presence. It's a blessing to spend time with a fellow believer. Right? Just, just time with a fellow believer talking about the things of the Lord. It's encouragement. But beyond that, we must depend upon the Holy Spirit of God and look by faith to the Lord Jesus who endured the cross. That's much worse than anything I'm going through. And he despised the shame of that, the Scripture says. And if you're ever tempted to quit or to give up, look by faith to the Lord Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. He's the great forerunner, who has run his course and entered into the presence of God for us. His path to glory was through suffering as ours must be too. Don't miss that. When people say that it's going to be easy when you come to Jesus. Not so. That's not what Barnabas was saying later on. It's through tribulations that we enter into the kingdom of God. No, Christ's path to glory was through suffering as ours must be. In humiliation, he suffered and died. And after his resurrection, he was exalted to the right hand of the Father. I think one of the encouraging things is that Jesus has walked this way before us. It says that he's the forerunner. And if he's the forerunner, of course, the writer of Hebrews is encouraging us to to run with endurance that race that's set before us. So that's the kind of race that we're running. It's a long marathon kind of race we're running. And it's not that we don't have helps. It's not that there aren't people handing us pancakes along the way and water and that sort of thing. There are that. In fact, this is one of those occasions right now. I mean, if you want to call a sermon a pancake, I don't know. But to encourage the saints, to encourage God's people to just keep on going, don't quit, don't give up. 
Christ has gone this way before us, and even now He is with us. Whatever you're suffering, whatever you're going through, what does the Scripture say? What does He say? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's with us. The Good Shepherd is with us, walking with us, leading us. And if the Good Shepherd is walking with us and will keep us, where's He going to bring us? Right to His table. Right to His table. And He's going to serve us there. And we'll worship Him there. Barnabas is, I don't know all the words, Luke doesn't give us the words, but he is encouraging these new believers with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. The cross before me, the world behind me, there's a lot of theology in that song. Very simple. No turning back. I hope I don't see anybody in this room that turns back from following Christ. That would be a sad thing. And certainly Barnabas, as he sees these new believers and calls them to, with resolute heart, remain true to the Lord, he's encouraging these young believers at a time when certainly there would be trials and temptations and difficulties that would come their way. But as they came their way, they could reflect. There was this man who preached the gospel to us, and he reminded us that it was going to be difficult. And it is difficult. But don't quit. Remember the truth of the Word of God. Don't give up. Don't turn aside. Certainly don't go like Demas after the world. I have a feeling that discouraged Paul when he said, Demas has forsaken me. He's talking about people who have left him. And he says, at one point, he says, only Luke is with me. And so, Timothy, hurry up and come. He took comfort in the fellowship of others. And when he lost the fellowship of those he thought were true, it bothered him. I think it bothers any Christian to see someone who used to profess. Maybe they still do profess, but they're just not with God's people anymore. Barnabas is trying to stand in the gap and encourage these young believers to stay faithful. Stay true to the path that you're on. This is Christ. He's the only way. Don't turn away. Now, it's interesting. Luke gives us an explanation as to how Barnabas was a channel of blessing to others. And he's not contradicting Scripture here. Notice what he says in verse 24. It says, For he was a good man, and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Why would I say he's not contradicting Scripture? Well, Jesus said when someone called him good, of course Jesus is good, but he was drawing attention to a truth. There's no one good except for God. I don't believe Luke here is contradicting what Paul would later said. There's no one who does good, not even one. He is describing the character of Barnabas in his relationship to God and certainly his relationship to the truth of God, to the Holy Spirit of God? Why is he a good man? Why does Luke call him a good man? Because, of course, he's a forgiven man. 
Barnabas is just like any other sinner. He had been forgiven for his sins through his own personal faith in the Lord Jesus, but beyond that, there was also Christian character and conduct in his life that was worthy of imitation, particularly his being full of the Holy Spirit, it says in verse 24, and of faith. So how does this man get called good or pleasing to the Lord? It's through faith that we can please the Lord. But then as we believe the Lord and we are filled with His Holy Spirit and we see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that's what testifies to the goodness, but it's not native goodness, it's goodness that's given. So Barnabas is an earthly reflection of Christ. People could look to him and follow him, and that's why Barnabas was a great choice, of course, for leading this group of Christians because he was a godly man. He had faith. That's part of the reason I believe he encourages them at the end of verse 23 to remain true to the Lord. He had faith himself, believed the Lord, believed what the Lord could do, and in a sense was setting that example for this group of people. He was also filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean? But to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Not only to be indwelt by the Spirit, but controlled by the Spirit. He was known for, it seems, his spiritual mindedness. Barnabas highly valued spiritual considerations, and he was hopeful, as he was with the Apostle Paul, that God could have actually done something. I mean, that, that would have taken faith on Barnabas's part to believe that Christ really could have saved this man, and he believed it, and that's exactly what had happened. So here's a man who's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's filled with faith, and he's a good man. And this is the life that he is bringing along with his teaching, touched by God's grace, filled with God's grace as he's ministering to this group of Christians who've just come to Christ and they're Gentiles. They don't, again, have the same background. And what is happening as this man enters into this sphere with all these new Christians? Well, he's such a blessing that even more people come to Christ. God works by His gospel to others as well. Notice the end of verse 24. It says, considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. He is now seeing substantial growth in this group of disciples. He'd come and there was a certain number. There was a lot. It had brought the report to Jerusalem. But now there's even more. And he's not only got his hands full, but he has too much. It takes humility to recognize you've got too much. It also takes some insight. God must have given him insight for him to recognize that at this moment, there's somebody that could help him. And he doesn't go back to Jerusalem. Notice what it says. Verse 25. He left for Tarsus to look for Saul. Now, he didn't have a smartphone where he could just pick him up and call him. I don't know if he had an address book. It doesn't seem like he even knows, other than that Saul is in Tarsus, where exactly he is. It says he went to look for him. Now, if he knew him just a little bit, he probably would have known he's a tent maker. But beyond that, he knew that Christ had saved him, and he knew Saul's testimony 
that Christ had not only saved him, but called him to minister to light bulb. I don't know if this happened with Barnabas or not, but there's a light bulb that seems to, at least it resonates with me, that this would have happened. He, he was called to the Gentiles. He's called to the Gentiles. He, he came to Jerusalem. That didn't work out. God called him to the Gentiles. And who am I dealing with now but Gentiles? And God has someone that he has sent to the Gentiles. And so it makes complete sense if you look at Paul's broader gifting and purpose as an apostle to the Gentiles that Barnabas would have thought in those terms and gone again. Luke doesn't make that connection, at least here. But if you go over to chapter 26, and stay with me for just a few moments here. Acts chapter 26, and look at what Paul says. As Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, and this is what happened that day, in spite of the fact that we don't see it in Acts 9 or earlier places where his testimony is given. Verse 16 Start in verse 15, I said, this is the road to Damascus experience. I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I've appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you've seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. What's my point? The point is that Christ mentions the Gentiles as a part of Paul's mission. And who does Barnabas go to get in verse 25 of chapter 11 but that man? What was he doing? Turn, if you would, back to Acts chapter 11. It doesn't tell us what he was doing. Later in Acts, we learn that there are churches in the region where Saul was. It's possible that Saul had gone into those regions and been preaching the gospel to people there. We don't know that. It's not said. All we can do is be left to infer that his presence there, his preaching of the gospel there, would have had some influence. I don't think he did nothing for eight years in Tarsus. But notice what it says in verse 26. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. So now this momentum has built. There are more people, and Barnabas... In God's wisdom, and certainly as part of Paul's own development as a, an apostle, a preacher of the gospel, he brings Paul to a place where there are many, many Gentiles that now for a whole year Barnabas can both teach and now Saul can teach. And what happens when you have Barnabas and Saul teaching and preaching a group of people for a whole year? Well, notice again what happens. Verse 26, it says, For an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And it doesn't refer to conversions there at the end of verse 26. What does it refer to? A distinct group of people never called this before. You've always had Jews 
who are believers in the Messiah, until Cornelius and his household, and that was something different. But now here's a city of Antioch, and the people who are believing in Christ are not Jews. So we can't call them Jews, so what do we call them? What do we call these people? We can't call them disciples. That's too nondescript. That doesn't tell us who they're disciples of. And if we said they're disciples of Christ, that's true. But it, we can shorten and call them Christians. That doesn't seem to be something that they developed themselves, that they called themselves. In fact, what it says at the end of verse 26 is the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch as if they, they did not choose the term for themselves. Luke uses the word disciples. These disciples, that's, that is what they are but they're called Christians because they're not Jews, but they're followers of this Jesus. This Jesus who is called the Christ. So there's something that God is doing here, and it's a wonderful thing to establish a name. And the people who are being called by his name are Gentiles. God is expanding the work. He is building the church. This is unstoppable. This is what he's going to do. And here we are a couple thousand years later. But here is the church growing, developing, becoming known for Christ in Antioch, from which is going to launch even more evangelism in the future. What does it mean to be a Christian? When someone is called a Christian, what does that mean? For some of you, you need to listen to this part of the message more than anything else, and I'm going to be brief. What does it mean to be a Christian? There are lots of people who don't have any idea what it means to be a Christian. They think it's a part of living in America or growing up in a home where people call themselves Christians. William Borden said over a hundred years ago as he wrote a little tract on what does it mean to be a Christian, he says there seems to be many today who have no clear conception of what is really meant by being a Christian. And I would say that's just as true today as it was a hundred years ago. Borden argued that disciples were called Christians because, he says, they trusted in Jesus Christ as their only hope of salvation from the penalty of sin and for the enjoyment of a future life of blessedness. That's what a Christian does. They trust in Jesus Christ as their only hope of salvation from the penalty of sin for the enjoyment of a future life of blessedness, we could add, in the presence of God. So there's trust and faith, personal trust and faith in the life, in their heart. Ben Borden went on to say, but in the New Testament, you find that Christ was not looked on as Savior alone, but also as Lord. It was the Lord Jesus Christ whose name they bore, and that meant that he had absolute jurisdiction over them. This followed logically and no more were clear, nowhere more clearly brought out than in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You are not your own, you're bought with a price and therefore glorify God in your body. 
What Paul taught others was but the vital truth that gripped his own heart and made him exclaim, for to me to live is Christ. That is what it meant to the disciples to be a Christian. Jesus is Lord. He's not just a fire escape. He's not just a name to name. But his lordship, if his, if his lordship is what you confess, he is Lord. He's absolute master. I could rightfully call you, if you confess Jesus Christ as Lord, submit to him. Why do you call me Lord? But you don't do the things that I say. A just question. But if he is your Lord, and he is a loving Lord, live for him. Walk with him. Stay true to him. You know, sometimes people see and meet someone where that is true in their life, and they will say, hey, that, that person's a Christian. There are some people I know, but that person's a Christian. What's the difference? It's because they are truly born again. Not only are they trusting in Christ as Savior, but they're living out his lordship in their life. I'll close with Borden's last words in that little tract that he wrote. He said, Christ was even more to those early disciples who bore his name. And should he not be as much to us today? He was the perfect revelation of God. He himself was God manifest in the flesh. This is the plain and ineffaceable teaching of Scripture. At his birth, the wonderful prophecy of Isaiah was applied to him. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted God with us. John tells us in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. All that is implied in these statements of his apostles is quietly assumed by Jesus himself. He is the Son unto whom all things were delivered and who alone knows the Father and reveals Him. Indeed, He and the Father are one, and those who have seen Him have seen the Father. The true Christian is one who has caught the vision of the pierced hands of the risen Christ and whose heart cries out like Thomas of old, My Lord and my God. That's Thomas's confession. And of course... We don't live up to that, but it may mean today that you need to repent and turn from your sin if you confess Him as Lord. He is Lord. Whether you believe it or not, He is Lord, and He is worthy of our worship. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, even as we bow before you now, we ask that you would convict by your Spirit the hearts of those who do not believe. Certainly convict those whose heart is deceiving them. And though they have made a profession, there is no true faith, there is no true life. Convict us, Lord, who do believe of our disobedience and sin when we know the truth about you. 
we know your commands, and we do know, Lord, that you have bought us with a price, that you own us. We're not our own. Our life is not our own. Lord, we pray that even today you would deepen our understanding of your greatness and glory, that it would affect our lives not only today but every day. And if there's someone here who does not know you as Lord and Savior, has never turned from their sins, Lord, would, would you work in their heart today to bring them to a place where they submit to the truth, they stop believing the lie, that they can just live their life as if it doesn't matter what your claims are upon them. Thank you, Lord, that you are building your church, that you did it at Antioch, that you're doing it here. And we ask, Lord, that by your Spirit among us, that you would bring new life where there is none. And where there is life, Lord, bring us together in Christian love. Help us to live out the life of faith that you've called us to. Help us to live as those who have submitted themselves to you as Lord. And we'd have to ask today, forgive us, Lord, for our sins against you. We have proclaimed you, Lord, and yet we've disobeyed. Maybe we've stayed in a state of disobedience for a long time. Forgive us, cleanse us, wash us, and help us to live in the light of the truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.